Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Poddleters. I hope your January is going well so far. Very excited to have this bonus episode of Adulting, which was recorded live on the 15th of December at the Boulevard Theatre in Soho. The two guests I have on are Catherine Gray and Kachenga, two incredible women who are now sober and they go through their journeys to sobriety on this episode. I really hope you enjoy it and let me know what you think as always. This will be the last episode going up in season five. I'm now pre-recording all of season six and hopefully we'll be back with you towards the beginning of February. So please do go back and listen to any episodes that you might have missed. Please do rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast so that more people can find it when I come back for the next season. Love you so much and thank you so much for listening. Bye! Hello, how are you? Hi, guys. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming along to the second ever Adulting Live. I might get you to do a big round of applause just so we get the energy in the room. Ready? (laughs) Thank you. So, thanks so much for coming. I know it's very close to Christmas, but I'm really excited to have this chat with these two fabulous women. Um, The first thing I need to say is I'm going to have to look at my phone sporadically throughout because last time um, the podcast went on for two hours. So, (laughs) actually an hour and 15 minutes. So, just to make sure that I don't run over too much, I might look at my phone. I'm not checking my text messages, I promise. Um, Okay, so... Today's podcast episode is all about sobriety, sober curiosity, and kind of looking at the way that we can change our attitude towards alcohol and drugs. And today I've got two women with me who both have had their own path to sobriety. I'm going to get them to introduce themselves, just who they are, what they do day to day, and then we're going to get stuck into the conversation. So, Catherine, if we can start with you. Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Catherine Gray, and I wrote a book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, which I was fairly sure that was going to sell 30 copies to my friends and family, (laughs) but completely astonished me, and it became a bestseller because I think it just came out at that moment when Britain was getting really tired of drinking and more Mm. sober curious. Um, So I've been sober six years now, and Mm. the joy of being sober really was unexpected because I thought it was going to be total social suicide. Mm. I thought, you know, I'll be able to turn up for work and stop spending all my money on Jaeger bombs, but my life is going to be no fun. Um, So, yeah, it was the best decision I ever made. But I'm not anti-drinking. I I don't feel that way about it. I just think that people should explore their relationship with alcohol and see if they'd be happier Mm. without it because I think a lot of people would be. Um, So, yeah, that's my... You want it? Totally. Amazing. And Kachanga? Oh, yeah. Evening all. Hi. <laughs> I'm Kachanga and I'm a freelance journalist and a writer. Yeah, some people call me an activist, but I think I'm a bit too lazy to like, really claim it. <laughs> it's, and um, I actually started writing in rehab. I went to rehab in 2014 for um, my drug and alcohol addiction. And yeah, I just started writing like a beast. I just, I got my dreams back. And 
and I just felt like I had to get out all of the trauma and the pain and everything that um, was being stirred up by these really intense group therapy sessions <laughs> and stuff. And um, yeah, I really struggled to stay sober for quite a while. I just couldn't see what um, a life without drugs and alcohol would look like for me for um, quite a long time. But then by giving myself over to like a spiritual transformation, um, yeah, I finally got um, sober in... 2015 and I actually was four years sober this week Amazing. yeah, well, Tuesday, yeah. thank you cheers <laughs> I think that um, the idea of sobriety hadn't even occurred to me as like an option until very recently mm. like I didn't I think that the idea there was a lot of stigma around people who have addiction like for instance when I was younger I would think that only people who are addicts were homeless people like it didn't really occur to me that I could fall into alcoholism or that I could end up with an addiction to drugs because the way it's portrayed is in the media used to be so dirty and as if it was mm. such a shameful and as if it was like a failure. Mm. And I think that what's really helpful is that by stripping away that rhetoric and saying that actually anyone could end up being in a place with, it could be things spiraling out of control, it could be that you just don't really like drinking, where you need to turn to sobriety. And I think that if we recognize it could be any of us that is going to help us change our attitude towards alcohol because i think even my own attitude towards alcohol thankfully has changed but definitely when i was younger i would drink much too much to make me feel more comfortable in social situations or mm. because i thought that you had to mm. and now i'm starting to i'm really starting to get to the place where i'm like, actually i don't think i want to drink this much not not to the point where you get really drunk and there's something i want to talk to you Catherine, about because i think blacking out something you mentioned and talk about and like your actions when you're drunk are very different and I think that that's something which sometimes we're like oh but that's just what happens when you're drunk but actually I think it's not quite that simple is it do you think no so blacking out people think when you're blackout drunk you're just passed out but you're not you're still walking talking and demanding a kebab <laughs> you're just um you're like a very stripped back it's like you've devolved and they know why this is ha happens in the brain. It's basically because the prefrontal cortex, which is the adult rational part of the brain that separates us from animals, takes a back seat when you're blackout drunk. So that's why all you want to do is shag or fight or eat fried chicken. <laughs> you, you basically become a wolf <laughs> on a night out. Um, so... I had loads of episodes like that where I would just lose hours of nights out and not remember what I'd done and then find out these horrifying things about yeah. what I'd done and how I'd behaved. And I didn't understand why I was behaving that way. And now I know it's because my brain had just, yeah, completely devolved back into the mists of time. And I've definitely had that. Luckily, the times I've done it has weirdly been with my friends when we've all blacked out. So we've mm. all kind of been together, me and my girlfriends. And mm. then we went on location services and we had to trace where we'd been. And oh. you know how your phone tells you and we'd just been in some weird bar in Clapham, but none of us could remember <laughs> for like an hour where we were. Luckily, we'd oh, all been no. there together. But I do think that's that really scary idea of like you can lose time. And I think we normalise it, especially at uni. Mm. You go, I'm like, oh my God, I can't remember anything from last night. But actually, that's so scary. You have no idea what's going to have happened to you. Mm. And I think... I also do think that it's nice to hear the fact that you're not, it's not you acting. Because I do think sometimes you can do things when you're drunk which can make you feel really ashamed mm. or feel like you're a really awful person. But as you just said, you're not actually really functioning then. It's kind of you in like beast mode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, did you, with your, do you want to talk a bit, about, Kachanga, about what kind of you think led you into falling into addiction? Because I think that's. Sure. I mean, in recovery, I found like just reading up as much about addiction as possible to be really helpful. And so I read Johann Hari's book yeah. and found out, you know, that 
the reason that I just couldn't stop using any substance was that, you know, I just fall into that 10th percentile category. You know, we, I'm just predisposed to, yeah, not being able to stop. And in terms of whether I was born an addict or whether I became one, I feel like, you know, I went through so much trauma reduction therapy and, and unpacking what I'm, happened to me. It does feel like because the because of um you know being an, a survivor and all sorts that there it feels like there was like a switch that was flipped you know and i when i went, i remember like going to freshers week at university and feeling like just so boosted do you know what I, mean? I was like oh my god there's this culture and camaraderie i can really cloak myself mm. in this i can hide away in the fact that this is something that we just all have to do you know we're just like british students you know <laughs> <laughs> so, but um in my final year <clears throat> Because I was reading so much um, feminist theory and going to um, different groups and learning about, you know, why the world was the way it was and why I'd suffered in very particular and specific ways. Um, I felt like just all the sludge of my growing up years was um, piling up and I just could not stop in order mm. to get the qualifications that I deserved. Um, and so, yeah, my spiral um, continued after I left university and I just kept losing job after job. You know, the first few weeks I'd be, you know, the darling of whatever, how many I was in, you know, always after work drinks, hilariously funny, willing to do like you know five times what you're willing to do um yeah judging you for like how weak your drinks were and you know like we have to have doubles um but I would find myself waking up in terrible places doing terrible things <clears throat> and when I got into a relationship with a rich lawyer it got so much worse because you know I was very much limited by I was about to say what was in my purse, but it's actually what was in his wallet. <laughs> there it goes. But with him, there was just so, um, the financial resources were endless. Mm. So you could literally just buy drugs and alcohol in bulk and there was never enough. And <clears throat> so that's what propelled me to um, go to um, rehab at the age of 28. That wasn't my intention. I, intend I intended to wait until I was 30 because... You didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop. And I didn't because, I, yeah, I relapsed soon after leaving rehab. Like, I think 90 days after leaving rehab. And <clears throat> I just... I really... My main problem with... Um, like having a sober life was that I'd envisaged all of these moments and alcohol accompanied. Mm. I, how could I could imagine having a 30th birthday birthday without a free bar and lashings of cocaine? And I was just like, it was just that's just what being 30 required. <laughs> and, so, and then also, um, yeah, getting married. Like my idea of yeah. what getting married um, was, was, you know, me in like, you know, a strapless dress and, you know, with a flute of something bubbly and just, you know, just <laughs> roaring laughter. You know, <laughs> it goes like really, I couldn't imagine getting married without 
bubbly, like just, ugh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> There's so many things I want to talk on that. So I do, if you guys don't know who Johan Hari is, I actually really, um, really want him on the podcast. But he's he talks a lot about how addiction is the opposite of connection. So when mm. you're lacking a bit of connection in your life, you may then end up looking to addiction. And this is actually based on, there's an experiment with rats, which you might have mm. heard about years ago, where they give the rats, I think it's heroin mm. or water or whatever, mm. and um, or food, and the rat will always pick heroin. I can't remember how it works. But mm. then they changed the experiment. They did it years later where they had two sets of rats, one set of rats that were in like the control situation they were before, which is like an empty cage with nothing in it apart from, I think you could, it, they could either have morphine or food and they would literally like die to get the morphine. Mm. And then the other rats were in like rat heaven. There was like mm. all these female rats they could get with, there was mm-hmm. loads of food. Mm-hmm. And actually they didn't end up getting addicted to the morphine mm. in the environment, which made them really, really happy. So mm-hmm. what he talks about is how we often think that it's the drug in of itself that you're addicted to. Mm. But, um, and that can be like, that is an element of it. But his school of thought is kind of like, you're more susceptible to fall into addiction if your environment isn't protecting you in the mm. way that a stable life kind of should. I felt that because um, I had my top wisdom teeth removed um, when I was in active addiction and my bottom wisdom teeth removed when I was out of active addiction. And um, for my top um, wisdom teeth, I was just in so much pain for months and months and was just using it as an excuse to like always have a bottle of brandy or whiskey in my bags because you know I'm just in so much pain and washing back the um, painkillers and stuff and then for my bottom um, wisdom teeth I was given like codeine I think an opiate of some sorts but I um, had to call you know my recovery community and I stayed in contact with people throughout that time but I didn't find myself slipping because Mm. my life had changed so much that you know that kind of cloudy feeling that was such a part of my everyday life it didn't I didn't need it. It wasn't mm-hmm. spiritually sustaining in the way that it once was. It was this fixed drug used to help me deal with the pain um, until I got better. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And also thinking about what you're saying, planning, this is so true. So I used to be a full-time smoker, like 20 days. It's my favourite thing. I'd wake up in the morning, have one with a coffee. I literally mm. loved it. Have one before the gym, go to the gym, have one straight after the gym, outside the gym, in my gym kit. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but then I also envis- envisage life with cigarettes. I'd even plan the idea that when I was like 40, maybe I'd like take it up again after I'd had some kids I don't know why I just loved it I didn't want to stop mm-hmm. and then one day I did stop and I know it's not the same thing but it is really fascinating how it's it's these perceived ideas and especially with alcohol I completely see that like mm. it's the glamour of like a glass of rosé mm-hmm. or like I almost think sometimes the idea of alcohol is more enticing than the actual thing like I get mm. more excited about going on a night out than sometimes when I'm there I'm like this is actually quite shit mm. but the idea of going or like mm. the getting ready is amazing mm. and actually when you're in the club it smells like feet and so mm-hmm. it's men <laughs> to touch you and you're like this is actually horrible I just want to go to bed but you have to be out because you can't be a fun young Mm. person if you're not at every event how how did you battle that I think that was one of the hardest things when you stopped drinking is how do you one avoid the peer pressure but two carry on living and not feeling like you're missing out on everything. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to cut through the glamorization of alcohol. Mm. I went to the cinema last night and there was at least 10 adverts beforehand for alcohol brands, um, which were all depicting scenes of like these perfect parties that I have definitely never been to. Yeah. <laughs> but my parties never ended up like that. They always ended up with me completely blotter in the next day getting a McDonald's or whatever. Um, so it's it's just thrown everywhere. And even if you go into somewhere like Oliver Bonus, there's like coasters and yeah. greeting cards 
else. Mm. And it's just everywhere the message that drinking is fun and being sober sucks. Mm. If you walk down a street, it's on clapboards outside pubs. It's on signs that we give each other and we hang up in our kitchen. It's just bloody everywhere. Um, And so you have to be aware of it and know that the difference between what they're presenting and dangling and the actual reality and knowing that it never actually was like that. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I, I just... It's about reverse conditioning because we've just be, we've just had this around us for so long. And when you watch a film or a TV, I mean, hardly any show drinking in a negative light. It's always, you know, the beautiful tumbler. Yeah. Even uh, it's now become almost synonymous with feminism. Mm. In the Good Fight, they're always drinking brandy or whiskey mm. sours or um, you know Olivia Pope drank, drinking yeah. two bottles of wine a night on Scandal. Mm. Mm. And and how did she do that and function the next mm-hmm. day? Because I certainly wasn't functioning oh, the next day. Every single time someone's just drinking like a neat whiskey whoever mm. I'm watching that thing with I'm like no one does this apart from my dad to be fair but I think <laughs> he does it to look cool and he doesn't actually drink it he just kind mm-hmm. of holds it but they're always they'll just get like a shot of something brown and they just mm. neck it no I've yeah. never seen anyone do that in real life no mm-hmm. nor have I and that, that was definitely my life yeah oh, really? yeah. Okay. yeah excuse me Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um my romanticization was really filmic. I always imagined myself as like Bette Davis in All About Eve, you know, just like but never like really slurring, you know, just kind of loosely hanging the fur <laughs> off my shoulder and stuff. Oh yeah, and the French, they've got a lot to answer for as well, you know, yeah, particularly with the smoking. Yeah, oh, yeah. I still think smoking looks so cool, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't do it. Yeah, definitely. But um, I didn't. I didn't actually begin to see um, destructive use of alcohol and drugs until my late twenties. It suddenly just. I, mean, I just started to pay attention. I got. I remember I used to watch um, Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. Um, yeah, like, and that was, or like Hollywood celebrities who were really at you know. The, the like last chance mm. saloon but because it was in that context it was always posited as this thing that you know that weak Californians like you know succumb to you know I couldn't imagine that being transposed into like a British context right. where you just were like honest about the fact that you weren't able to keep going without alcohol so what was the turning point like what was the moment when you actually st- stood back and thought that was healthy and now this is not healthy do you know if, what if there was an exact moment or was it you just realized that you were using it as a crutch in some ways hmm. um i didn't really have a lot of compassion for myself and that's what um everyone used to point out i would you know, be falling apart at like three, four, five in the morning, you know, everyone else is having a fun time. And then Mm. I start, you know, pouring out just like, it wasn't just inappropriate and it wasn't just, you know, being too sad or too maudlin. I was, you know, just verging, like my, my talk became suicidal. I didn't really realize that that was what it is, but you know, just that idea that I couldn't go on what was wrong with me. Mm. I feel so um, flawed. I'm not worth anything. Disgusting. I'm so, um, people around me would say, you know, what are you saying? Like you're clearly very talented and you're very, um, and I just didn't really see any beauty in myself or my life. Um, so that was like the first inkling other people like sitting me down saying, 
you know, you need to start loving yourself. And I thought that was just so trite and disgusting. Like, how dare you? You know, like, I mean, like, because it was always probably this, like, you go from this um, one location of, like, really hating yourself and then you just need to love yourself, man. And then, you know, like, you just, mm. yeah. And I just couldn't understand what anyone, why anyone was telling me that. Um, and it dawned on me... Um, probably from around the age of 18 onwards, I knew that my other friends could turn things off and they did it. They weren't in love with drugs and alcohol in the way that I was, that it, they were my best friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed them like, and I needed them like, you know, more than other people I needed to have a spliff when I got off the bus, I needed to have a line on the way to work. And, you know, so it, the way that I was using was quite, it was quite evident to me that it was like destructive, but I was kind of able to make it look okay So we for a while. briefly spoke before about how you said you go to NA mm. and I was like asking like, that's Narcotics Anonymous and even Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was kind mm. of asking like, how do they differ? And you mm. pointed out very rightly that alcohol is still a drug and it's very interesting that we separate the two things. Mm. Um, and drug use is a lot more prolific than you would have believed. I remember listening mm. to Radio 4 in the car with my parents. And they were talking about how they think that someone, they, these people go to raves and they take drugs. I was like half asleep. Mm. And my parents were like, oh, I don't think anyone does to you. And I was like, what are they on about? Like, they were born <laughs> in the 60s, like, how did, 50s. Like, how do they not know that like mm. when someone says they're going to a rave, the likelihood is mm-hmm. they're popping a pill or mm. most of the bankers that work in the city mm. are sniffing coke. And I think mm. opening up those conversations and being a bit more honest about it is really fascinating. But also recognising that alcohol... I think it's funny that we glamorise it so much when mm. we are so disparaging about all the other drugs. Mm. I mean, caffeine obviously gets a great, great, <laughs> great time. Mm. Um, but when, when you were using drugs, mm. obviously if you're doing a line on the way to work, that's quite a lot. But mm. were your friends using drugs at the same time as you, but they mm-hmm. didn't have an issue with it? And how do you think that, do you think that alcohol should be viewed as potently dangerous as drugs are? Um, I did. Yeah, I attached myself to anyone who was using as much at least. Yeah, you needed to be like close to me in consumption for me to consider you, you know, just vaguely worth hanging out with. Um, So that was definitely a thing. But what happened to me was that when I arrived at rehab, I, you know, just felt like they were just going to get me off the harder stuff. You know, okay, you know, I could, I I felt that, you know, abstinence was just, too far you know like that's ridiculous um but yeah when I was being um given the time and the consideration and just and the love really to be able to speak about what was going on with me and I tell you what I felt like I felt like I was like Jon Snow in like the Battle of the Bastards and stuff and like so I'd gone there for like drugs and alcohol and that was like you know one or two soldiers and then just coming over the hill is this deluge you know nicotine caffeine (laughs) you know shopping internet usage and then like yeah, so you have all of that like deluging on you, and then above that is like the dragon, and the dragon is like codependency, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so like love and sex addiction, and you know, childhood abandonment and neglect, and all of that stuff. And I just, it was so much. I think that's probably why I struggled to um, remain abstinent, just because it just felt like dealing with um, the issue of addiction in general and filling that void that was just so huge I couldn't really handle Mm. um so yeah I once I discovered recovery communities and I also took um 
Janet Mock. Um, she's a fantastic writer, trans rights activist, um, a writer and a director on Pose. And I took her autobiography to me with um, uh, her autobiography to me um, with me to rehab. And because I had never really had a narrative that chimed with mine in that way, I suddenly began to see that I could have a life worth living, right. and that that was. That's what I needed. I didn't just need to get abstinent and to give up the drugs and the alcohol. I needed to realize my purpose on earth. I needed to realize what I was here for and also just have some bloody compassion for how awful the things I'd gone through were. Mm. Catherine, for you, I think you're... Would you say that you were addicted? What was your... With your with your relationship to, to alcohol, I feel like you've both been through similar things, but in a very different way. Mm. And I feel like maybe your relationship with drugs, Kachanga, to some people would seem very extreme, whereas maybe mm. your relationship with alcohol, to some people would be like, well, that's really normal. Do you think... Oh, no, it wasn't normal. Was it not normal? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not normal. Um, so to chart my progress, it was... I started realising that something was amiss when I was about 27 because my friends were starting to drink less on nights out and I was starting to drink more right. and trying to harangue them into one more bar and one more club and let's go dancing. I didn't really want to go dancing. I just wanted to go drinking. And um, I was finding myself kind of staying out late at night with people I barely knew. I'd kind of make friends in the club to sort of line them up for later on because yeah. I knew that my friends were going to bugger off about 12 because it was a work night mm. and I wanted to stay out till two. So... That started concerning me. So I started this. And also I worked on a magazine. I worked on Glamour magazine. So I could go out every night and drink for free yeah. if I wanted to, which was really dangerous because I did want to. Mm. So I was going out all the time and not having to pay for it. And, you know, with the financial thing, that wasn't an issue because I could just go and have free drinks. And so I decided that I was going to start this mission to moderate. And I had this notebook and I wrote down all these things I was going to do. I wasn't going to go to free drinks parties anymore because they were the problem. Yeah. It wasn't me. <laughs> it was the free drinks. And um, I wasn't going to drink wine anymore. I was going to switch to cider because that's harder to drink. But I just ended up drinking more cider. Oh. And, you know, marking my diary three nights off a week and writing down how many units I was consuming. And it just didn't work. I mean, I think the best week I did was about 24 units, which is obviously over what you're meant to drink. And the worst week I did in those years was about 60 units. Mm. And so I stopped trying to moderate. And I just, right. thought, I just thought, I'm just going to go with it. And then my boyfriend of three years when I was 30, shortly after my 30th birthday, I thought we were going to get married and he dumped me very suddenly. I was absolutely heartbroken. And so I start... And my drinking got a lot darker then and I'm sure like that's when it flips I find yeah. often when you're going through heartbreak or mm, grief or something event. like that and I started instead of going out I was staying in because I was finding that when I was going out I was having blackouts and getting into really scary situations mm. and waking up in strange men's beds mm. and not remembering what had happened mm. and you know waking up I once woke up in a bathtub in Soho mm. um, and I was meant to be at work 
20 minutes ago and I had to go to Topshop and get some new clothes to go to work. It was just, my life was completely off the rails. Do you know what's so scary though? Because I have a lot of events with free drinks and stuff and that also stresses me out because I, PRs will be like, oh, we I will be really not like relevant to the brand. But the PR will say, oh, we invited you because I know you're fun. And I think, God, that's not a good sign. <laughs> like I'm literally being invited because they think I'm going to drink with them. So I've got better at having like one and then leaving. But it is, I do think that if you do go out every night and drink, mm. no one, I don't, there's, I think there's very few people that will actually go, oh, actually, do you think Catherine's okay? Yeah. Because I think people just think you're fun. Yeah. I mean, one, one of my friends said when I quit, because the, most of my friends, nine out of 10 of my friends said, you're not that bad. Just take a month or three months off. It was only my very best friends who'd lived with me for two or three right. years, who'd seen it up close, who said, great decision. You know, yeah. that's such a good decision that you've quit because everyone else thought I was okay. And one of my friends, this really stuck with me. She said, you were my big night out friend. I just didn't realise you were everyone's big night out friend. Right. That you were having a big night out five nights a week. Mm. And I was, but I was, I was brazening it out. I was managing to patch up the hangovers and, you know, sort of be okay for work. Well, I think you can, because I found this, and, I, and this is what I find at Christmas, this is what I find quite stressful. I think if you drink... I don't know if you ever go on holiday and you kind of drink every day, but after a while you kind of are fine. So I don't, I tend not to drink in the week. Like any, normally I would just go out for a meal and get drunk or like once a month have a big night out. But when it comes to Christmas or from away on holiday, you might drink every day. And by the third day, you could drink a bottle of wine at dinner and you don't even feel bad the next day. Yeah. And then I think when you do that, you then wake up the next day and you think, well, actually I could have a, drink of wine tonight mm. I think basically the more you do it this is why I think it's so scary with alcoholism especially especially in London I see people that you just think you can just fall into it because without realizing I think you get into this habit of drinking and actually the hangovers are I think it becomes your normal basically mm. yeah I think it does but then for me the hangovers just got crucifying so much so that I was I was fighting to um, subdue them and you know an English breakfast stopped working right. um, two strong coffees stopped working and I even started getting the shakes very very slightly mm. not so much that anybody noticed but I really noticed it yeah and I, that was when I was like oh my god I think I'm becoming physically addicted to alcohol mm. and then soon after that I started re researching suicide which mm. was just you know obviously you know a sign there was a problem and that's when I quit do you think that the the suicidal feelings were coming because of your dependency on alcohol being a, dep a depressant or was it the fact that you thought, oh my God, I'm a failure because I've become, or was it an amalgamation of your life changing because of the alcohol? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it was both. I mean, I think it was a combination of the two, but the, it, it is unignorable that since I quit drinking, that has not even crossed my mind mm. in any way. So those two are completely interlinked for me. It, the depression was caused by the alcohol, I think. Yeah. And also the the absolute devastation the alcohol was wreaking on my life. And I was wreaking on my life as a result of being an absolute nightmare. So it was, it, yeah, it was just a big snafu of mess of drink and bad decisions and failed relationships and depression and mm. uh you know the the one magic thing for me was quitting and then everything changed slowly but yeah it did so that's incredible I mean what I think about alcoholism I think what we it's really hard to recognize is that you have to stop mm. I think I hadn't really thought about this before that like if you have a problem with alcohol you can't just cut down like that's the end of no. it was that a long process or did you literally was it like a I mean I <sighs> 
it took five months of stopping and starting. And what I was finding was that I was putting three days together and then seven days and then it went up and up and up. I don't know if you found the same. Mm. And then eventually one day it just clicked and it was just random the way it clicked. But I think mm. with each time that I stopped and then started again, I learned a new lesson and I applied that to the next time. I was like, oh, okay, maybe not a good idea to go on a press trip when I'm only 30 yeah. days sober and everyone's going to be getting rasped. So yeah, I, I found that you just need to apply the lessons. But um, yeah, if ha hardly anyone can moderate alcohol. That's mm. the truth. I really don't know very many people at all. I can count them on one hand who actually go out and have one or two drinks. Yeah, Moderation is bloody difficult and we're told that it's easy and it's not. No. It's an addictive drug. So, of course, it's addictive. People get addicted. But that was the other thing I want to say. Like, I think the setup, this is going to be quite conspiracy theorist, but we'll go with it. Um, I think like capitalism, I was saying this bit to Kachanga earlier, like the way the world's set up, it's kind of designed to make you want to work really hard because you need to have loads of stuff. So the only way you can like get something out of life is if you go out on a Friday and a Saturday and you're being seen to be out and you're drinking loads and you're having the new cocktails and I think it can be really difficult because of social media exacerbates this I find even with my friends I was talking with about some of my girlfriends from school and we were like why do we feel like we've got to prove that we're out like sometimes mm. on a Friday night I just don't want to speak to anyone mm. but then I almost feel embarrassed but that's fine you can be tired like you don't have to want to do things and I think that alcohol plays into such a big part of this system where because we feel like we're so tired from our work and that I just need a drink because, you know, I've had such a long day and it's been such a long week. And if you play into that and you let yourself go into that flow, I think that can be really dangerous. Because actually, it's because I've, I think I'm luckily, because I got really into exercise when I was at uni, I think if I hadn't done that, I think I would have ended up probably drinking a lot, like having an issue with alcohol. But because mm. I got really into exercise, I was like, I don't want to drink because I want to get up early to train. Mm. And luckily that's become my norm. So I don't really drink that much but I can totally see I think I'm really aware of how much I was really drawn to like hedonism I loved mm. going out I loved being mm. the last one to leave the party I was oh, yeah. always the one that would be like quick let's go out quick turn around in five minutes I've done mm. like a full fake tan and an outfit on <laughs> and we wouldn't have been going out um so I but I think that having that creating a life that you don't need to escape from which is much easier yeah. than done and mm. definitely created from privilege can kind of help you to put up boundaries around it and I think sometimes where instead of facing the thought that actually we might feel a bit better if we get up a bit earlier and go to the gym or it might be better if we just try and stay on top of our work like falling into this oh I'm just a party girl or I'm mm. the one it's feels easier but mm -hmm. in the long run I think it's really well obviously very damaging yeah mm. I mean yeah I found like the concept of like the rock bottom really I really struggled with like it really eluded me because I had so many and then also I got to yeah when I was 27 I wasn't like hoping that I would join the 27 club but like when I like got to 28 I was like oh god you know I really like you know I've got like no legacy do you know what I mean I'm not like Amy Winehouse I'm not Jeff Buckley I haven't like left behind like an album like you know some great work and so I was like, like now I've really got to face up to the fact that you know life um has to be worth living yeah and then yeah when I did finally get sober I felt <clears throat> I felt this need to tell everyone um because I had gone through life like feeling like such an alien and then finding a community of people who felt the same was really fundamental to me like feeling like I could make it and so um 
like getting sober in the age of podcasts was really helpful. I, I discovered like Glennon Doyle through Oprah. Um, yeah, the um, Oprah Soul Sessions and. Mm. Um, yeah, she's American and spoke about um, her alcoholism and her concurrent um, anorexia as well. And that was really important to me because I'd never, because I wasn't um, skinny, I'd never had um, the opportunity to have anyone see my eating as disordered mm. or to um, think that I was struggling in any way um, with food and, you know, body image and body dysmorphia and everything. And I think having, I mean, we really do need to define the word holistic, but at the same time, I think having like that holistic approach to addiction where I felt like I was paying attention to how, how I filled that void in, in so many different areas. That's what really helped yeah. me because I am, I've, I'm an addict for life. It's not like I can um, say that I'm ever going to be healed or that, you know, I'm, I'm ever like, you know, not going to be an addict. Like I, find myself acting out in various different mm. ways it's like whack-a-mole like you have to you know i like put one thing down and then suddenly like i'm binging on um like netflix or then you know i'm back to like eating loads of donuts or you know i'm um on all like three to five different apps you know trying to find the perfect one you know I mean? like, um yeah I, no i totally agree i think it's exactly that's kind of what i was trying to this consumption idea that you always have to be consuming something whether that's mm. like having amazing sex having amazing clothes going out for all the drinks and actually i agree with, it's really weird you said that the 27 club i'm so dramatic so i like write, write like fake memoirs on my phone where i like, pretend to be someone else <laughs> i wrote this one about this girl called nora when mm. i was walking around the park so honestly who am i anyway in that <laughs> i wrote a bit a similar thing like where it's like i basically I think when you it's a weird age as well I think when you're around like in your mid-20s you kind of stop being the youngest in the room mm. and I'm the youngest child as well so it can be quite unsettling when you realize you can't have your youth as hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Like your kind of like thing that you can shout about. Suddenly you've actually got to have a bit of authority. And I remember writing this fake memoir about how... Uh, if I if I died at 27, it wouldn't even matter. And that's really annoying. So you've got to actually start playing, like doing life in the way that seems so boring, but putting boundaries up. So basically pushing against that consumption. So telling yourself that actually you can't just go and do that because you want to, or you should. All the things that I used to hate. I hated the idea that having being organised was good for you. I was like, that's ridiculous. Having a tidy room, I was like, no one needs that. I'm creative. <laughs> and like going to uni, I don't need to go. Like all the things that you think, especially think when you're younger and you're passionate about stuff, mm. you just think everything your parents tell you is bullshit. But actually, like getting up early, drinking loads of water, and going mm. to the gym and saying no and putting up boundaries makes you feel amazing but the mm. world will have you believe that it doesn't because that chaos of consumption mm. is what keeps you kind of trapped mm. and now i feel like i'm talking about like a buddhist idea which i don't think like, that's, no, there's anything that's wrong true. with that though i think that there is um <coughs> something culturally retaliatory with 
um, our attraction to um, like minimalism and people like um, Marie Kondo yeah. and um, Cal Newport, um, his book Digital Minimalism. Um, you know, gambling is such a pernicious addiction. Yeah. And I found it so scary when he was speaking about the fact that when they were creating um, social media and stuff, I always th I thought it was like a glitch in my phone that. Um, you know, where you would like open the app and then it would be on something, then it would like just skip like to the higher part. And I was like, why is it doing that? And so I find myself scrolling through. That was actually something that they designed because yeah. it um, mimics um, the, what are those Vegas machines? The, um, yeah, slot machines. Yeah, the slot machines and stuff. So you find yourself like panting, you know, like got to get back to that particular mm. quote and trying to remember like the colors and the face. I've forgotten the name, but you know, I can kind of find yeah, it so and true. stuff. So yeah, they are stoking our um, feelings of a and the, and feeding that through our technology and I, so I think there is a retaliation towards that because we're waking up to you know the fact that we've been been duped into feeling like we can fill that void mm. with feeling constantly connected and stuff and even like for me in terms of consumption I am desperate to have way more meaning like because I used to I used to like get drunk and high and then you know go around Primark and you know and stuff like I it was really really bad there's nothing I love more than like just getting really high and just going around with like a trolley and just chucking everything in <laughs> and stuff and yeah like waking up the next day and I there was something about when I got back from rehab and I was just looked around my room and I just had so much stuff mm. You know, I was desperate to have, uh, I wanted to have every perfume that I'd ever, you know, fallen in love with on my um, makeup table. And I finally got that and I was just so bereft. I was like, this is not fulfilling mm. me. And like now, um, I probably spend more time just like considering what I need in life. I think it's so personal you bring up social media and obviously loads of my career was start of social media and I feel I'm really like antithetical in that on the one hand I think it's amazing and then on the other hand I do think this idea that you can buy happiness in a lifestyle and I even get that you'll go through someone's page and you'll want to buy literally everything they've got on because there's something so attractive about the idea that if I have that outfit I will have that life and I I feel like I'm so reformed in a weird way without having ever got to the full addiction but my personality is so like that I had a Mecca Bingo account in my first review and it got really addicted to it used to pretend that I was a mum and chat to the other mums in the chat room I did, this, <laughs> I did my first ever stand up the other week and that was like the opening gambit and my housemate's like what are you doing anyway and like, I've, I've dabbled with trying to be that anyway but getting into the gym got addicted to that had really bad relationship with food and it's taken me so long but luckily I don't know how I did it because I do think I'd like to save myself but through doing self-introspection all this work I realised that going for a walk just like with my boyfriend or with my friends is the most wonderful thing in the world just walking mm. around a park or like reading a book and all these really basic free lovely things which you can't put onto a caption or mm. onto a, a billboard or you can't sell anyone that so mm. you kind of forget that it's at your fingertips mm. and I don't know if you feel really empty sometimes if you binge watch like a whole thing on Netflix mm. or I've wasted the whole day mm. and basically I think it's because of capitalism trying to sell us all this stuff that it's really hard to access the wonderful things in life that are just available to you. And I think with alcohol, sometimes we just waste so much time mm. trying to create this fun because you're buying it, whereas you could just have fun not doing that, yeah. if that makes sense. I think we give it too much credit as well. So we tend to drink 
when we go out and do something fun. So we tend to drink yeah. when we go out to a gig or, you know, the theatre. Or I always used to go to those boutique cinemas that sell wine because <laughs> I couldn't possibly go to the cinema and not drink wine. <laughs> and so therefore we give it too much credit. We're like, oh, that was fun because we were drinking. Yeah. But it, it becomes probably, about the booze. Yeah, it would have been fun anyway, but you need to give it a chance to be fun without the drinking. You need to experience it a number of times until you actually settle into it naturally and you get over your social anxiety. Because so many of us, even though we're not addicted, it's a spectrum. It's yeah. a one to 10 spectrum. I may have been an eight or a nine, but so many of us are like a five or a six totally. where we it's unthinkable to go to a party and not have a drink because we use that to settle into it. Yeah. To, to get over social anxiety. And it's such a crutch for that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I didn't, my parents have used to drink when I was younger. I don't remember. But then I, I remember then as I was older, like, so we go to the theatre and they would never drink. And it was when I got older, I realised that people, as you say, like the drink is the fun bit. Mm. When actually like you're going to a comedy show, you don't need to buy like pints of wine because yeah. you won't be able to get in the interval any more drink. Like you're going to watch, a that's funny. That's the point of the, the thing. Yeah. And it's such a British thing that, everything is around drinking but then on the flip side of it I have to I've been a bit like you as well I'd be the one that if my friends said they weren't drinking I'd be like what you are <laughs> you know what you're on about. and I've actually had to retrospectively go back to one of my really best friends like last year and be like I'm really sorry because I used to do it to her mm. all the time mm. she just doesn't really like drinking so she just mm -hmm. doesn't drink but I would fall I'd be like no because yeah. I wanted to drink and it made me feel really uncomfortable yeah. that mm. she put these boundaries up so how do you then become the person because when I have not drunk now I would pretend I'm drinking. Mm. So I'd get a soda water and a lime. Yeah, <laughs> and so, so it's no one tonic. It looks like a gin tonic. But mm. what do you do? How do you genuinely say to people, like, I don't want to drink, or it doesn't make me feel good? Because I think that's, that's one of the things. Maybe lots of people don't want to drink, but mm. yeah. the peer pressure is so great. Well, I think, I mean, the way I started doing it when I first quit was I was very sincere and I said, you know, I started researching suicide and people were just moving away from me at parties. And I was like, mm. <laughs> Maybe not. Let's lighten it up a bit. So now I tend to like tell a story. Like, for instance, once I woke up in Brixton Police Station having been arrested for being drunk and disorderly. And when they gave me back my belongings, I was like, oh, at least I've got my bag. You know, it's fine. Um, they were like, this, this is what you had on you. This is the only thing you had on you. It was a tiny pink child's hairbrush. And that was it. No keys, no phone, no nothing. And so I tell them that story and then they're like, okay, no drinking for you. <laughs> or I'm like, oh, there, there was the time when I got into a hot, hot, hot tub topless at my work Christmas party and the next day my boss heard about it and they're like, okay, no, no drinking for you. So I find if you make light of it, then people tend to, I don't know, they respond better to it. Mm. But then... I've had some really lovely, vulnerable conversations when I've been gentler and much more um, sincere about it as well. So I think you just read the situation. If it's a group, I tend to tell a shocking story. If it's one-to-one -one and I can tell that yeah. the person's sober curious, I'll tend to be like, oh, well, actually, I'm just much happier and here's how I was feeling when I was drinking. So, yeah, I think it depends on the person and the situation. Totally. Mm. What about you? How do you... Do you still go into those party environments or have you completely left that chapter. I think I yeah I have I transformed my life to the point where I don't really go out in that way anymore but yeah when I do dip in it's for like a finite amount of time like I know I'm going to be there for you know half an hour to 45 minutes and my personality is such that I can 
like just take part in my own way. Um, yeah, because what people are really looking for is to be engaged and funny and tingly and bright and stuff. So I just kind of do that, but in like a more concentrated fashion. And yeah, like Coca-Cola just has so much bloody sugar in it. I just, I do find myself just like just bouncing off the walls. And, and yeah, so I can do that for like half an hour, but I really want to go home. That's the weird thing. You do just want to go to bed when you're not yeah. drinking. You're like, I'm so tired. Whereas when mm. I'm drunk, a bit like you, I'm like, I can stay out till five. So mm. Absolutely great. Mm. And it's weird. I don't know. I don't know what it is that like the attractiveness about this darkness. And I find like as I'm old, getting older, I would rather just go for a nice meal, have maybe some wine. Mm. But the idea of actually getting drunk, I think that is so weird when you think mm. about it. Like we're going out to get drunk. Yeah. Mm. I don't think men, like no other countries do that really. Like, we're the only place where. It, well, but like in Europe, they kind of like accompany something with a mm. drink. So you're there, and the drink is like a side note of what's going on. Yeah, it's not Whereas the centerpiece. We of the go night. out, you can't even <laughs> hear each other. You're just stood mm. around. There's like beer everywhere. <coughs> like you don't. It, there's nothing going on apart from like just trying to bl bl get blotto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so bizarre, and I think it is something that's. It's definitely um, endemic in Britain, but I think also in America as well. It's mm. quite bad. So, yeah, it's something yeah, that you we... have, like, alcoholic tourism. Like, so even yeah. if they're not able to drink in that way in their state, they can, you know, go on holiday to um, New Orleans or Hawaii and stuff, oh, and you can drink in public yeah. and drink in the streets and everything. So, yeah, the, it is a cultural thing, like, that you <clears throat> find... If it's not okay in your immediate environment, there's always that place that you can go to in order to just blend in and like make sure, yeah, make it seem like everything's normal. Mm. What I think is interesting in, in your two stories is that with with Catherine and I'm gonna I'm gonna make assumptions and you guys can correct me, but mm. it sounds like with you, there was you were kind of in the perfect environment for this to happen. Mm. And do you think had you maybe lived in a different place or you weren't working at Glamour and those weren't available to you, you may have never ended up with this relationship with alcohol? Whereas I feel like Kachenga, you're saying that something you went through traumatic experiences mm. in your in your youth and as you're growing up mm. that led you to f to, to seek out mm. like self-medicating would you say that's mm. true or do you think that no I think I think no matter what would have happened I would have ended up getting addicted and having to quit I just think it would have taken longer to do it so in a way it was accelerated which right. it did me a favor that boyfriend dumping me at 30 kind of did me a favor because otherwise I might still be drinking now and you know it might take longer for me to reach that place where I'm really like no I need to leave this so I think it would have happened no matter what because it, it is, it, it's to do with, um, if you have a bad childhood, you're seven times more likely to drink mm. um, heavily later in life. If you drink before you're 15, you're four times like, more likely to really? become addicted. I started drinking at 12. And then when you add in, uh, well, yeah, I got white lightning. I started clubbing when I was 13 because I met some older friends and they'd kind of smuggle me in yeah. to these really dodgy clubs. My first nightclub was Mihiki when I was 14. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, can't, I don't think I can get in there now. <laughs> that is, that's really interesting. So you think it is kind of like um, it's more nature, more nature than nurture. I think it's sense? both. I think it's yeah. both. I really do. I think it's... Uh, but yeah, and then you add in social anxiety. I was really anxious mm, yeah. when I was a teenager. And then when I found drinking, I was like, oh my God, here's the answer. Yeah. Here's what's going to allow me to become an extrovert, even though I'm an introvert. And, you know, 
dance and talk to boys I like and whatever. This is the magical elixir that I need in order to become what I want to become. And so I just completely embraced it and threw myself into it. So I think it was quite inevitable, yeah. So do you think now, I think the, 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 the like final thing I want to posit to you guys before we open up to the floor, also sorry if you have a drink, we're not judging. I, <laughs> no. I, I did it for 21 years, no judgment. <laughs> but it is life, because I, I know the answer to this, but I kind of think we all want to hear it, it's like there is so much more to life than mm-hmm. needing to go out. Yeah. Like, have you found that your life is just as full, well, your book's actually called The Unexpected Joy, like is it even fuller? Do you think that you can access so much more if you're not drinking? Yeah, I mean, I go I go out all the time as well. It's it's just that I do more interesting stuff. I'm not mm. going to the local to sink a bottle of house white, and you know, I'm just not doing that anymore. I'm going to comedy nights and theatre and interesting experiences yeah. um, because I've got a lot more money, frankly, because mm. I can go to a gig and spend one pound eighty on a pint of lime and soda and that lasts me all night. That's Whereas so before, true. a night out was like twenty quid on drinks. So it's yeah, life's just m- much more interesting. Yeah, totally. But you can have just as rich a social life. I go out, I've, I've danced till 3am when I'm sober. If mm. the music's really good yeah. and you really get into it and you're with mates and you feel comfortable, you can have an absolutely rocking night out. I mean, that was last year, but <laughs> to be fair. Normally I'm in bed by one, but, you know, it, it does happen yeah. once you really settle into it. So... Amazing. There is no loss. Mm. Do you have any advice, Katanga, for anyone that, or both of you actually, that say you think someone might know someone who's struggling or they're struggling themselves, mm. what is the first move that you think is helpful? I mean, especially coming from the drug side, because I think if that is a bit more taboo and mm. someone's struggling, I feel like almost sometimes with drugs, you can hide it more depending on what you're kind of addicted to, whereas mm. alcohol sometimes I think can be more visible or mm. obvious, or I don't know. Mm. I think... <clears throat> Any decent addict is going to be able to put a lot of effort into concealing, yeah, what they're taking and stuff. So um, there's going to be a period of denial and concealment. Like, no one wants to be an addict. No one, mm. no one, like, you know, like, wakes up at, you know, the age of 10 and thinks, oh, yeah, you know, alcoholic. Yeah, that's the one for me. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I just got so much from reading. I think I read... Um, Conquest by Andrea Smith. Um, she's an Indigenous American academic who spoke about the um, higher rates of alcohol in the indig- um, Indigenous communities because of what they'd gone through um, as a society, you know, right. as a culture, you know. So that that trauma um, led to, um, you know, a collective and destructive use of alcohol in order to, you know, like palliatively deal with so much assault being committed against them and yeah, all of that violence. And then I really took to, is it, I've forgotten how to pronounce his name, I think it's Gabor Mate. Yeah, um, he's um, based in Vancouver, wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and works with um, the those addicted to um, heroin um, in Vancouver. And, you know, he, um, is a, I mean, his approach is a lot more modern. I think he does a lot more in the, um, like, set, he, he'll actually use certain substances in a session in order to um, unearth trauma um, together. Oh, wow. So that, whether that will be MDMA or ayahuasca or whatever. So I think 
there's such a wide range of techniques mm. and practices associated with um, getting people into recovery. What I would say is for myself, I wasn't ready until I was ready. And so if anyone had, um, <clears throat> you know, foisted too much information on me, I had so many people tell me about um, local alcohol services. Maybe you should do this. You know, um, I wasn't able to do that until um the pain became so acute that I had to right and so what I think the issue is if you identify someone in your environment if they're not able to admit to you um if you try and put, um if you try to aggressively to force them they're probably going to run away from that what I think you need to do is to make sure that you've got all of the resources all of the information so that when they come to you you're going to be able to help them and uh, yeah and assist them getting into recovery and but then you know if that's someone who's younger who's more vulnerable i think there is yeah you need to go and get professional help yeah. in order to deal with the fact that yeah the rates of addiction um, for all of us are probably on the increase yeah that's really good to know i think it's it's always hard to know where to stand in a situation but i i also have to say i love the way catherine that you said it's on a spectrum because I think mm -hmm. this is where thankfully we're getting to this position where we're all starting to address I certainly am like what is my I definitely I don't have an addiction to alcohol but I definitely am that person that will just go out until three and, mm. and, and I won't necessarily be the one that's like we should leave and that for me is something that I want to change and I think instead of feeling shameful it's a really positive thing and even like sitting down with your friends I did with my girlfriends and we all were kind of like actually I were kind of over it mm. and we don't have to keep up the camaraderie just for the sake of looking like we're having so much fun because <laughs> we're going through this weird like quarter life crisis um, but I want to open it up to the floor do you guys have any questions I want to know what impact um, your addiction maybe like had on your career at the time like did it have a really negative impact or was it something were you in a stage of your career where you could sort of take a step back and allow yourself to recover and and then get back into it yeah that's a great question um I think my drinking sort of helped my career at first because I was going out a lot networking a lot meeting a lot of editors and magazine people that then would put me up for jobs so it was like a networking thing. And then um, I started, you know, people started giving me nicknames like Bad Santa. <laughs> that was one nickname. Booze Hag. Um, they started, instead of saying that they were going out to get smashed, they would say, I'm going out to get cast tonight. <gasps> so, yeah, I mean, there was a point where it turned the other way and I started becoming um, notorious for being an absolute drunken record. And so that was the point where things took a turn and that was about 30 as well so that was a real key age for me but until then I got away with it even though I would call in sick and I would literally call in sick I allowed myself four or five six days a year when I was just hung over or you know had woken up on somebody's sofa over the other side of town mm. um I still got promoted and still rose through the ranks it was after 30 that things started going back down but now, in sobriety, my career has gone somewhere that I just couldn't have e ever imagined because I work a lot more. Because <laughs> I'm not drunk <laughs> or hungover. So, you know, to answer your question, yes, it did impact, but it took a long time to impact. And I got away with it for a really long time. Mm. Yeah, I had the opposite experience. Like I had a really haphazard approach to work. 
um, you know, I was in hospitality, I was in retail, um, you know, I'd get these like, <clears throat> yeah, just these like bursts of, you know, I'm gonna become a makeup artist, you know, like just dedicate myself to that for like um, seven weeks and then like, yeah, just throw it all away. <laughs> but um, towards the end, um, I was working in <clears throat> various bars and uh, restaurants and stuff. And <clears throat> yeah, I just kept losing jobs. It would be cool at first, you know, fun times for the first um, um, couple of months. And then, you know, I'd miss a shift. I'd, you know, not, <clears throat> I'd like coming drunk or, you know, like, you know, there'd be some problem like with the till. I wasn't necessarily stealing. I was just like, a I was just a mess. <laughs> so like, yeah, I just... It, I just became a liability. And so, um, yeah, I think after I lost my third um, bar job, and yeah, they really like, you know, there were so many talks beforehand, you know, like where they like sat me down and say, you know, Kachan, you really got to get yourself together. And then the alcoholic in me would just say, you know, I've really got to hide my drinking more, you know? <laughs> so so like, I would do a thing where, you know, you like make a drink on shift that just looked like it was a soft drink, but it was actually, you know, um, yeah, like a spritzer and stuff. Yeah, just like, just way too much lime in something. <laughs> so I'm like trying to disguise it and <clears throat> I've really I really struggled with employment um afterwards because um I I just I had no no one had asked me like what I wanted to do no one had and no one had any compassion for my, my situation like um People were just like, oh God, Kachanga's just such a mess. What's wrong with Kachanga? When's Kachanga mm. going to get their act together? You know, that sort of thing. Um, so it wasn't until I developed that compassion to my, for myself and could communicate that and carve out um, a path that didn't require me to be the life of the party, that didn't require me to acquiesce to things that I didn't want to. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think... In sobriety, I've found um, the independence and been comfortable enough with my autonomy and got comfortable just with not being that likable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that, you know, really women really struggle with. Like, you don't have to be, you know, dedicate yourself to um, mm. niceness in order to get on. I think, oh, yeah, I've got a book that I haven't read, but it's, um, I like putting it at the front, it just says, nice girls don't get the corner office. <laughs> so, yeah, that's become my dictum. But, you know, I like, I'm a freelance writer and I work from home, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is, that is so true. I, you don't have to be nice all the time. I, that is really hard to do. It's not just so nice, jokes. Um, do we, we have one more question, if anyone has one. Oh, sorry. If it's quick, you might be able to do too. Hi, um, I don't know if you've been dating so Um, but I was kind of just going through the apps the other day, and loads of people's bios for things like, there'll be like the question like, how do you know if you're the one? And you say, if you can out drink me. When it comes to maybe like organising dates with someone, and you say, oh, I don't drink, and they maybe suggest drinks. If then they're a bit, I'm not going to say put up, but they don't, don't know what to do because you naturally become nervous. Do you ever kind of get, yeah, I mean, I don't put it on my profile, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> um, although Bumble have now added a thing where you can put that you don't drink. And I did put it on there, actually, because that felt less, you know, I didn't have to put on the actual bit that you write doesn't drink or sober. Um, but actually, I think you would be surprised. There was this study that showed that when people have alcohol in their main profile picture, 
they were less successful. So it actually puts people off. Mm. But I just hard swerve the people who mention like mm. wine and bottomless brunches and stuff. I'm like, no, well, you're not for me, clearly. Mm. Um, but I think I, I've dated sober people. I've dated drinkers. Heavy drinkers are not for me, definitely. We just, we're not compatible. Um, but I think, I don't think this is as big a deal as people think it is. Mm. And I've only had maybe three guys ghost me when they found out that I don't drink I tend to drop it in later you know after a couple of days of chat because I text them for a few days just to make sure they're not insane um and that's when I drop it in and then you know by then normally you've got a rapport and it's fine anyway but there's so many more things you can do that don't involve drinking you know take a dog for a walk borrow my doggy um or go climbing or just there's there's so much out there go to an art gallery there's just you know and you can truly connect with that person and find out if you actually fancy them Mm. rather than having wine goggles yeah. and then you know snogging someone you don't really fancy which I did about 8,000 times yeah. yeah so yeah I think I see it as a really positive thing now because I just cut through the people that I don't really like and mm. um yeah if you can't relax with somebody sober then they're not the mm. guy for you or woman yeah so. yeah I have had it on my I've had I've not had it on my profile and then right now I do just because I've got like a really like militaristic approach to things right now so like, yeah just like filter I'm looking for one or like several ones but yeah <laughs> I do and um it hasn't impacted my dating life I've never I've not yeah I date so much more now um and I find that I'm so much more engaging like my dates are just better like you know I just I just yeah I can really feel the butterflies and I yeah I really like no um and that's been really fun um I love going on dates and changing people's perceptions of what, yeah, a solo life is like. Yeah, they're not expecting you to be as fun. They're not expecting to have as much fun. Um, and and I, yeah, I just do. I also find it really interesting, like being like going on a date with someone who like drinks sensibly and like yeah, just has one. Yeah. Like you are fascinating. What, what is you know, you're like, not, so you're what not doing is that it right. Like? Wow. Uh, <laughs> but I think a really good um, indication is um, that reality show Millionaire Matchmaker. Mm, um, yeah, yeah um, Patty String, I think her name is. But yeah, basically, yeah, she'd have like you know these mixers and like introduce um and people and she has a two drink maximum Mm. and I think that's really quite clear like you know that after two drinks things can get really sloppy like you know you really shouldn't um you know be have no inhibitions whatsoever with like an absolute stranger you know you deserve protection you deserve to keep yourself safe and preserve your peace and Mm. that sort of thing so yeah I found nothing has been better for my dating life than my spray and also I think it's quite lazy to go for drinks for dates so if you Mm. posit the idea that this person you've got a date has got to take you somewhere that's Mm. not drink. I think that's quite good like litmus test to see how fun mm. they are because if they can't yeah. think of anything they're just like well you're yeah. really boring see? and if they're mm. not fun yeah what's the point yeah yeah that's true it's actually a great idea mm. I've already got a boyfriend this year <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll do your last question quickly because you put your hand up so my question is going to like friendships um, just because I feel like myself personally like, getting drunk and things like that I feel like you might be more likely to say things that aren't true to yourself mm. um, so first of all just like how has 
drinking or addiction to drugs and other things that affected your friendships like during those periods and then afterwards did you lose any friendships because maybe you're not as fun or whatever because I feel like friendships are really important and maybe if you're vulnerable as well then actually they're more important and just yeah what's like the relationship between friendship and addiction? Mm, great question. Do you want to go mm, first? Yeah. Um, I did lose friends, but it wasn't actually too harrowing. I just had way too many going out friends and just friends who I was, we were only friends because we drank the same and mm. did the same amount of drugs and stuff. And so afterwards, um, it was just like a natural divergence. And I like to... Like, you know, friendships are so precious and it's hard as you get older to make new friends and stuff. So I really invest and I found that since um, I got into recovery that um, the quality of my friendship has just gone through the roof. I depend on them so much more. I call, I buy much better presents, you know, and stuff. Because you're listening, you know, throughout your conversations, you're like hearing like, okay, like, you know, she wants that Fenty, you know, she wants that, you know, <laughs> she likes this, she doesn't have, um, you know, a brown handbag, you know, and stuff. So, yeah, I think um, for me, my, um, yeah, I've just, re my, um, I've just really concentrated my affection. And so those who are in my circle now um, really value me. And what, something that I always um, hold dear is that when I got sober, my sister um, yeah, came with me to my recovery meeting and stuff. And at the end on the bus home, she said, you know, I just, I'm just so thankful because I really feel like I've got my sister back. Mm. And so, yeah, that's something that, yeah, is just always going to motivate me to keep on going. That's lovely. Mm. Um, yeah, so my answer about six months ago to this would have been very different. I thought that I hadn't really lost any friends apart from, like, the people who are 10th on your list when you really want to go for a drink um, because I had no connection with them other than wanting to drink. But I found out recently, because I got a message from a friend who had completely turned her back on me about nine years ago and she sent me a message saying oh my god I just heard you on a podcast and I had to stop the car because I was in tears and I didn't realize what you were going through and so I met up with her for a drink uh, uh, <laughs> not an alcoholic drink oh. cocktail <laughs> yeah I drink <laughs> no I really don't uh, that's uh, the other me <laughs> yeah. we met up and she told me that because I thought that we hadn't we'd parted ways for different reasons and no it was my drinking that was what oh, wow. was the deal breaker and she said there was this one night when I mean they, they're the ones who gave me the nickname Bad Santa oh. and I was literally wearing a Bad Santa hat that night because it was near Christmas and um, her boyfriend was lying on the floor because he was also drunk and um, I thought he needed he looked like he needed a hug so I got down on the floor with him and spooned him and she was like oh my god what are you doing and she said that was the point where I was like no I need you out of my life because there'd been so many times when I'd been messy and a nightmare mm. and that was what was the straw mm. that broke and so we made up and she sent me a message just a couple of days ago saying you're way more fun now Aww. and that was so lovely so really but then there's another friendship which was the best friendship um you know she was she would have been one of my bridesmaids where I, I've had to walk away now because she's really in the grip she's like two bottles of wine a night and I lived with her for a spell and it was just, it was just 
so awful and she'd just become a darker version of herself and I'm sure that we'll become friends again if she ever quits but right now I can't be around her she's just hmm. too dark is it, tr- is it triggering for you or you just you it's not the same person it's, no it's not triggering for me but she's become I mean and I did too she's become a darker Mm. version of herself the the girl that I love has been lost a little bit she's still there but she needs to make some changes to come back out um but in general my friendships have become much deeper and much I mean there was a bumpy period where they're like what do we do now (laughs) because we always went for drinks before (laughs) what do we do with Kath but then you you fall into new habits where there's one friend that I always go for we go spinning and for brunch and you know there's another friend oh yeah (laughs) yeah. brunch is amazing you you don't need drinks yeah um just not alcoholic drinks Mm -hmm. and um there's another friend where we love going to immersive theater you just fall into new lovely rituals and you know the ones that are good stick around and uh, yeah can I ask you quickly sorry I was going to stop but with your friend do you agree with Kachanga and that if someone's in the throes of addiction you kind of can't you have to let them want to change yeah yeah I mean you can't she asked me for help a few times and I bought her books and tried to give her advice but she doesn't want to change she's not ready yet so and that might take a year it might take 10 years she may never change um, and it was just too heartbreaking for me to continue to watch her. And I try, I mean, it was, this was over four years yeah. that this was going on. Mm. So yeah, I think, mm. uh, and, and that will probably have, if she ever does get sober, she'll think back to that and think, nice. actually Kath did me a favor because it, that was a real shock. Yeah. And you know, that was a rock bottom mm. of which people have hundreds, not just one. Mm. So, and one of my best friends, my and my real best friend, tried to dump me one night, um, and then she took it back the next day. But even that was a slap around the face, yeah. and mm. it really made me think about my drinking and think about where I wanted my life to go. Well, you two are complete success stories. Like sitting with you here right now, you'd never ever know that you'd been bad Santa or that you were doing a line <laughs> on the way to work. So it is a really wonderful thing to have you sitting here and telling us. And I think no matter what you are on that scale, which I love that analogy, I'm going to take that with me everywhere. Mm. I think we can learn so much from you. I'm really grateful that you came on to this podcast. Thank you so much for you guys for coming along. Um, it is the last podcast of 2019 and I hope you've enjoyed it. So thank you so much to you guys and thank you so much for you guys for coming. Thank you. Thank you. One last little bit, which I just forgot. Do you guys have anything that you need to plug that you're doing that's coming up that people can come and see or anything? Oh, yeah, I've got a new book out. I think you, do, you should have on your seats. Oh, yeah. Time. Yeah, you're all sitting on it or, <laughs> or you've moved it. You're sitting on my new book, um, which is, yeah, it's all about gratitude and finding um, joy in the everyday, which sounds super Oprah, but I promise it's not. It's, it's, it's approached in a very British wry way. Um, so that's out Boxing Day. Amazing. Cool. Yeah, and I'm in a book too... I'm in um, an anthology um, curated by Scarlett Curtis called It's Not Okay um, It's Okay to It's Not Okay to Feel Blue It's Not Okay to Feel Blue excuse me sorry yes so yeah (laughs) (laughs) I was just like trying not to trim over like a double negative or something Uh, (laughs) so yeah I'm I'm included in that and I talk about um, my mental health and yeah my mother's um, Alzheimer's diagnosis and how that coincided with um, yeah my 
like path to sobriety and stuff. So, Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. Um, I'm going. We're going to leave the stage, but I will actually come outside for a little minute and say hi if you want to say hi. But yeah, thank you for coming. Bye. Hey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 